Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is everybody's friend, Matt Easton. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much. And um, just by background, Matt is the BYU valedictorian who came out as gay during his valedictorian speech. I believe that was on April 26th. And um, we're going to talk about kind of life with Matt before he came out during that speech and life with Matt since that speech. So we'll kind of divide this podcast into two parts. Uh, Matt offered a wonderful prayer before we started, and we just hope that a wonderful spirit is here as Matt is doing the very best job he can as a gay Latter-day Saint talking about his journey and now kind of has this added responsibility, which I don't think he planned and knew would happen. We'll talk about that to bring voice to our LDS LGBTQ friends. On a personal note, Matt is a friend. Uh, Matt has deep ties with the Osler family. Um, I think the first time I knew Matt was because he served a mission with our son, Matt, in the Sydney, Sydney, Australian, south or north? The north mission, yeah. And you spoke Korean. That's right. I did. Good memory. And I remember my wife, when you came home from your mission, came to your homecoming and just loved your homecoming talk. And that was a chance for our family to connect with our son who was still serving. That's right, yeah. And you've been a roommate of our son Jacob at BYU. I have, yeah. You could, we won't, and you could tell us stories about Jake, but <laughs> we'll we'll spare Jake any embarrassment publicly on the podcast. There's only <laughs> BYU roommates, but I think your closest family friend is Emily. Yes, um, our daughter, who's a BYU student. How did you first get to know Emily? Uh, we took a class together. Actually, I'm I'm a political science major. She's a international relations major. So we had some crossover in our classes. So yeah, we took a really difficult class together. Uh, really bonded there, and she's been probably one of my very best friends ever since. And just on a personal note, Emily's been in China and just got home yesterday. And Matt just walked in the door, and the hug they gave to to each other it was really touching for me as a father to know the role you've played for good in Emily's life and the and the role that Emily's played in your life. And those are the best of friendships. Absolutely. Yeah. But I realize as you were hugging her, you're never going to be her boyfriend, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I will not. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so, and maybe that, and that's really cool. <laughs> so um, talk to us about, introduce yourself to our listeners. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to high school? And some of your journey there. Yeah, so I actually just grew up down the street from where the Oslers are, so in Conwood Heights, Utah. So I grew up right next to the, the canyons, loved to, to ski. Um, my parents are high school sweethearts from Olympus High School. Wow. So uh, my Utah family ties, they, they run very deep. Uh, so yeah, so I grew up here, um, had a wonderful childhood, went to Brighton High School. Um, then I, it was actually my senior year that they changed the mission age. Uh, so I was 18 years old, the first group that went out on our missions. Wow. Yeah, and I went to uh, Australia, as you said earlier. Did um, you open your call with a group, Matt, or did you open it all solo and then open it with a group? <laughs> you know, I opened it up with a group for the first time. So uh, I, I don't know. I just I love people. Um, so I think doing it alone probably would have been a little uncharacteristic of me. You do love people, and people love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Did you see Korean quickly? Because most people would probably see Sydney, Australia. And might and just assume it's English speaking. Did you see that pretty quickly? Man, you're good at this. Yeah, I, I actually I read Sydney, Australia. Everybody I, screamed. Everybody screamed. I put my call down, and my dad was like, "Wait, wait, wait! Keep reading." 
Uh, so I picked it back up and I said, oh my goodness, it's Korean speaking. And nobody believed me. They thought I was making it up. <laughs> I was like, no, read the paper, read the paper. So uh, it was actually a very tender experience because my family, uh, when I was a, a year and a half old, we actually lived in Sydney, Australia for about Wow. I never knew that. Yeah. So I actually went back to the same place from where I had lived as a child and a lot of the people knew my family. So uh, I think it was, it was a very tender experience, especially for my parents because they knew exactly where I was going to go. And had you taken any Korean, Matt? Not a school? lick. No, I, 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 had, I didn't even know how to say hello in Korean. So. And were you with Korean speaking missionaries the whole time? Sometimes you go to those missions where it's kind of a sub, a minor sub language, maybe use that language. You don't always stay in the language. You did tell us our listeners about that. Yeah. So actually when I got there on my mission, uh, my mission president, you know, I had an interview with him, met him and he said, you know, Elder Easton, I don't want to break your heart, but you probably will never speak Korean in the mission. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, you'll probably never baptize a Korean person, teach them. And you know, it broke my heart. I had just spent nine months learning, or sorry. It uh, felt nine like weeks. nine months. Yeah, it felt like I, nine months. That's I'm right. sure that that's true. <laughs> yeah, I had spent nine weeks learning in the MTC, and I really felt like God had called me to this, you know, specific people and, and language within Australia. So for about a year of my mission, uh, it was just like my mission president kind of predicted. You know, I didn't really speak Korean, um, had English-speaking companions. I went out to the bush, they call it in Did Australia. Yeah, this little town called Tamworth. And I loved it. But about a year into my mission, I thought, you know, I, I still feel like this is my calling and, and I feel like I'm not fulfilling it. So I called up my mission president and I said... This is President House. This is President House, that's right, yeah. And I said, President House, I I want to go somewhere where, where I can get a chance to meet more Korean people. And I'm, I'm going to prove to you and prove to the Lord that that I can fulfill this calling. And so he was like, okay, Elder, let's try this. And he sent me right into the heart of Sydney City. Uh, and uh, I spent the rest of my mission there. So a whole nother year. And um, by, the, by the end of my mission, we had you know baptized uh, uh, almost 10 Korean people. We had a wow. little Korean unit where we talked wow. class every week. You know, and, and I really felt immersed in the culture. And, and, and I felt like I, I had you know fulfilled my calling more than I had the first year of my mission. So... So it was a cool experience. I think part of that might have been the Lord teaching me, you know, sometimes I'm going to have to, you know, ruffle some feathers and, and I'm going to have to push forward. But if I do that, um, you know, he's going to help me out. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, thanks. How did you keep your Korean um, so that it would work a year after not speaking it? Because I, I mean, you learned it for nine weeks. Yeah. Um, so how were you able to do Korean? Um yeah, so they, our mission president had pretty strict rules about language study. So I, I studied every day. So you did study. But, but I only had the missionary handbook. So um, I hope President House isn't too disappointed if he, if he hears this. But my dad secretly uh, mailed me some like uh, audio books, some like Rosetta Stone. So, uh, Korean. I, yeah, some Korean Rosetta Stone. So, so I actually did those lessons uh, every day when I was out in the bush. So at least I, would, I, I learned a little bit more than I think I could have. Uh, just from the preach my gospel. <laughs> I love that. And I love your mission president. Um, yeah. I love the idea. I've always thought good revelation comes from good input. Yeah. And so here you are, you're still honoring your mission president and he has priesthood and priesthood keys, but you're giving him added input so that he can go to the Lord and make a decision. And I love the way you did that. And then you were able to then serve in downtown Sydney and teach Korean people. Yeah. And say again, you 10 people joined the church. That's right. Yeah. I, I, 
Might have did been you actually get in white and baptize Korean people? I, I did. Well, we tried to to get the but other the members. members to baptize them, but uh, yeah, and and it was really special. And um, uh, I I was able to go to Korea the next year after I had finished my mission oh. and met some of the people who I'd baptized in Australia, who were then active members in Korea, and and for the first time, you know, I really felt like uh, I was connected to that country. You know, it was, it was a really special feeling. It's cool. Talk about your sexual orientation. If were you aware you were gay or same-sex attraction, whatever label, in high school? Yeah, I think that I knew in high school, but I wasn't ready to think about it or talk about it. I was in a lot of denial. Um, so I'd, I'd always been kind of a, a different boy. You know, I, I loved playing with my girl cousins, usually over my boy cousins. I, I um, liked some more feminine things, which doesn't always mean uh, that you're gay or not gay, but for me it did. Um, my, my parents, I think were, were very careful never to like push labels on me or to, to try to make me deny that I was gay or tell them that I was gay. Um, a funny story, actually, when I, when I got my first room, my dad had taken the family room downstairs and he built a wall in the middle. So my sister could have a room and I could have a room and we got to choose the colors uh, that we wanted. And so my sister chose like a, a purple room or whatever. And my dad's like, Matt, do you want blue? Do you want red? And I said, dad, I just love the rainbow. <laughs> like, I love every color. Can I have a rainbow room? That's cool. And, and my dad kind of, you know, he, he thought about it for a couple of days, tried to convince me otherwise, but I was stuck on it. So he painted every wall in my room a different color. So, uh, so it was a rainbow room. So, How old um, were you? Do you remember? Oh, I was I I wasn't in uh, young men's yet, so I must have been ten years old, maybe nine. So still pretty young, obviously too young to know kind of what implications came with with rainbow. <laughs> I just really like the colors, you know. So I think I think a lot of my family kind of knew, you know. My I, I've since talked with my brother, and he was kind of like, yeah, I always knew you were probably gay, but mm. um, but I never felt like pressure from my family or, or felt, and, and maybe I wonder if they were a little afraid to ask. I think I was afraid. Um, so it wasn't until my mission uh, where I, I started to, to confront my sexuality a little more head on. Um, just in the sense I, I, I went through some rough patches in my mission as I think everybody does of, you know, feeling inadequate and unworthy. It's honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I actually, got put in touch with our mission therapist or counselor. Um, he was, I forget his name now, but he was an elder in uh, New Zealand. So I would call him every week. And um, he was one of the first people I'd ever told that I was, I was gay. And I was like, I just want this to go away. I don't want these feelings. Um, and he told me, Elder Easton, you're going to have these feelings the rest of your life. You know, they're not going to go away. And, and you need to learn how to, how to handle it and what you're going to do about it and what kind of life you're going to live because of it. And that was really hard for me to hear on my mission. I did not like it because <laughs> um, I I still was just convinced that, um, you know, that I was going to overcome it, to use air quotes. I know you can't see that, but um, yeah, so, so that was, that was kind of tough. And did that put you in a tougher spot emotionally, just knowing that this is something that's going to be part, that is part of you will continue to be part of it? Did it help you in the long run that... Um, what the counselor said. Yeah, looking back now, um, I owe that counselor a lot. I think that was really the first stepping stone for me, um, getting over what I think for my entire life had been sort of this self-hatred or self-loathing about this piece of my identity. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so toward the end of my mission, um, 
my my mission president actually I, I came out to him as well. I told him, President Hal's like, this is something that I just feel terrible about myself. I, I hate this. What can I do? And um, he actually gave me a blessing, and and in the blessing, um, he blessed that my homosexual feelings would go away. They'd be replaced with heterosexual feelings. That I would be sexually attracted to a woman. I would get married, become a bishop one day, and and I I left that blessing, and it was like the best day of my life. I thought, oh my gosh, all my problems are solved. You know, I'm 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 clean again. I'm uh, my mission president has told me this is going to happen. I have full faith in in my Savior. Um, I never have to talk about this again. Uh, so I came home from my mission just maybe two months, month and a half after that. And, uh, I began uh, school at BYU, started dating some girls and, and the feelings that I had didn't go away. Uh, they, they only got stronger, I think. And, and tr I tried so hard to have romantic relationships with women, um, to be sexually attracted to them in an appropriate way to want to marry them and, and have a family. And I just could not feel that. Um, and I just felt like I had let my savior down. You know, I, f I felt like clearly if this blessing wasn't working, it was my fault, right? That, that, um, it, the savior had promised this. And so clearly I was sinning in some way or, or I was doubting in some way. And, um, that was, it was a really hard time for me. <laughs> Honest. Yeah. Um, what do you make of that blessing? You know, we both love President Hales. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely love him. He's been in our home in the last year and spent a week here. And we both love this good man and his wife and yeah. their commitment to church. What? How do you reconcile that blessing then? You know, if, if I'm being honest, I, I still am, I think. Um, I still don't quite fully understand uh, what its purpose was or is or, or maybe what the Lord meant by that in the blessing. Um, and I'm okay with that for right now. I, I hope that, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll understand it a bit better as, as time goes on. Um, but I do think that my mission president was doing the very best that, that he could to help me and comfort me. And, and, you know, maybe that's what I needed to hear to be able to finish out my mission strongly, you know, and, and with, without that kind of self-hatred, you know, and, um, but it's still, it's still been really tough. Uh, but, but I don't, I don't feel angry about it. Yeah. I like your answer, that Matt. It's a very yeah. thoughtful answer. I'm still reconciling it. Yeah. I think it's okay not to have answers to every prior life event or every spiritual experience. I think that's fine. Thanks. Um, so that's a really good answer. Do you um, talk about this? Were you a couple people have introduced a new term to me that I've, if I can say it right, it's hyper religiosity. And it's sort of like, I think it's self-defining the term. It, you sort of become almost over-obedient in an effort to become ungay. Did you go through that after your mission, before your mission, during your mission, and just increase good behavior to somehow get you know change yourself? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, actually, I actually haven't heard that term used before, but I think it uh, really resonates with my own experience. Um, I, I think ever since a young age, you know, once I was baptized, I've, I've always, I'd always been, you know, very hyper-religious, I think very, very concerned about how obedient I was being, how many sins I had, you know, tallied up against God and how many I could make up. 
Um, I was really good boy in high school. I didn't never broke any rules. I was on seminary council. I, I did my best to work very hard in, in my mission. Um, I mean, I think it was a mission culture, but we were quite a, an obedient mission. And, and so, so I do think that there was this part of me that thought, you know, this, my sexuality is such like an evil or a dark thing about me. Maybe if I can produce enough light and if I can be like super obedient, then it will make up for it or that somehow I'll be able to, to, to balance these two parts of me. Yeah. I like that answer. It sounds, uh, you didn't say this directly, but I sense some of the hardest times were emotionally then were post mission. Yeah. As you were confronted with your, your missionary friends dating and having serious relationship and you're trying to date and you're just maybe feeling more broken. Um, is that true? And were those your hardest days during all of BYU or the beginning of BYU or kind of share with our listeners your journey there? Yeah, you've hit it right on the head. Uh, again, I think that uh, it was finally a time in my life when I was, you know, I was only 20 years old. I got back from my mission. Yeah, you're but, young still. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still quite young. But yeah, all my friends from high school were dating, getting married, um, having these, you know, more serious relationships. Because when my aunts and uncles at family parties weren't, you know, always just making lighthearted jokes, they were a little more serious, you know, Matt, it's time you start dating, you start, you know, who, who are you seeing or how many dates have you been on? And, and so I felt, I think, a lot of pressure around me, but also I put a lot of pressure on myself because I, I thought those were the expectations I had to live up to. And, and I just could not keep up with it. Um, and, and what's more is, you know, I, I was at BYU my, my freshman year and I thought, okay, I am gay, you know, I'm here. And, and for some reason, I mean, I, I guess I knew there were other gay people on campus, but uh, for, I, I thought that I must be the only gay student who, who didn't realize and have a strong enough conviction about who they were before they came to BYU. Because clearly if anyone else came to BYU and they knew they were gay, um, they would know exactly what their life plan was and exactly what they were doing. And, you know, now I know that that's not true, but that's how I felt at the time. So I felt so, so alone. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. I should have had this figured out before I got here or I should have not come. Um, and so I felt very alone. You know, there was, there was no visibility for, for other people like me. Uh, I think a large part of that was I was too afraid to look for it or I didn't know where to look. Um, and I just felt super lost. Um, and so it wasn't until... I think my sophomore year, yeah, so it was one year later, um, I was just walking in the Wilkinson Center and I saw an ad for this therapy group called uh, Reconciling Faith and Feelings. And kind of the subtext said it was for uh, students who were struggling with their sexuality. And I thought, oh my gosh, here's the group for me. Um, I'm going to go there. These trained professionals are going to tell me exactly A, B, and C, what I need to do to reconcile my, my faith and my sexuality and, you know, the 10 step process to marrying a woman and to staying in the church, you know, that, that's what my concept of this group was. Um, so I signed up and, you know, in retrospect, I'm so thankful that that is not what the group was like at all. Um, so instead I got there and for the first time I was surrounded by, um, a variety of other gay and lesbian students, um, who were all on very different paths of their sexuality and their faith. You know, there were some people who, were totally signed out of the church who said, I don't believe any of this. I just got to get my degree and I'm out. There were other people who said, you know, I will never sacrifice my faith and, and I need to know what I can do to keep that. Um, and then there were people in the middle. And so for the first time I was in a situation 
where other people were just like me and were struggling with the same things. And it gave me space to ask questions and to show up one day and say, you know, I am so sad and so heartbroken about my faith. And the next day to come and say, you know, this week I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful and I'm feeling uh, really connected to my savior. And, and, you know, I really think that that therapy group saved my life. I really do think so. Why do you think it saved your life, Matt? It's pretty, yeah. tell us why. Uh, just just as I said before, I think that it was the first time that I saw a future for myself. The first time that I thought, you know, there might be something more to me than just, or, or more for my future than just uh, living in self-hate, you know? Because I saw other people uh, who maybe hadn't made it out of there yet, but who were in it with me. Um, was this an official BYU group, or was it an unofficial BYU group do you remember yeah so it was uh provided by the counseling center at byu so it was actually the i I was in the first group that they offered um i think they had done it maybe 10 years previous or 15 like a long time ago but they discontinued it for a variety of reasons and so i was in the first group that they decided to do it again there were just um eight or eight of us maybe nine um and last i checked i think they had three or even four groups running uh the last semester um, which just goes to show, you know, how much good it's doing, I think, and, and how much we as students at BYU need it. Yeah, I, I think of that. And at first when I stepped in the space, I thought, well, we shouldn't create community for LGBTQ people because sort of faith versus fear mentality I had because of fear they might hook up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then the more I've gotten in the space, I sort of have more faith that, you know, these are all God's children and we create community around people that are walking common roads. And often that is about finding people that give each other hope and can walk the same road. There's something about bearing one another's burdens that if you're on the same road and you have people. So I love your experience with this group. And I think local leaders are sometimes worried about forming or even talking about this subject or forming community around this subject or a support group or something. And, I just think we'll mature as a church where we'll be able to have more of this that you experienced at BYU because we'll recognize the importance in in providing, you know, ministering to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So I love this story. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and, and I think that when we don't do that or when we don't create that sort of community and togetherness, it does the opposite and, and isolates. Um. And I really felt that, uh, especially my freshman year, I think some people may have heard me talk a little bit about this experience before, but... Uh, yeah, talk about this, yeah. Yeah, it was, so this was before I found this therapy group. It was my second semester at BYU. Um, and I was in, it was my uh, international politics class, or introduction to international politics, but it also counts as a general ed class. So lot, lots of students in this class. We filled a big classroom in the JFSB, which is a building on campus. Um, and there was a boy who sat two rows in front of me. His name was Harry Fisher. Uh, I had talked to him once or maybe twice before, uh, we had done like some game theory simulation or something, but so, so I knew his face, didn't really know who he was. Um, but about a month and a half into the class, our our teacher stood up and said, um, you know, one of our students has taken their own life. Um, and she said, you know, gave us some consolation and said to reach out and, 
So I went online and I, I found out who it was and uh, it was the student Harry Fisher. And um, I read this article that said that he had just recently come out himself um, and, and really, really struggled and, and faced some backlash among our community. And, and that played a large role in him, you know, being at a point where he took his own life. Um, you, you know, and I saw him do that. And I, I, this, this was the first time I'd, I'd seen someone like myself. And to see the way that uh, he was driven to, to this point in his life uh, really, really scared me. It really frightened me. Um, and I was so afraid that, that I was going down the same path, you know, that, um, that maybe ultimately no matter what I was going to do, that, that there was no hope for me, that there was no place for me. Um, and that, that's a really, really scary place to be in, you know, and, and it was a place where I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone about it, where I felt too afraid. Um, and, and how I feel now is so different. You know, I, I feel like I have such a, a bright future in front of me and, and we all do. And, and so what would you say, if you could go back to your younger self that you just described, looking at the Harry Fisher suicide and thinking, is this my future? What would you say to yourself right now, Matt? Oh. And it's really you talking to other young people that may feel that way. Yeah. I would tell them that I, I promise that there's so much more. Um, I would tell them that, that all the people that, that love him, um, love him for who he is. And that's all parts. Um, I would tell him that, that there's so much joy in front of him and, and so much potential and, and that, um, that's not going to be his path, you know, and that there are people uh, around ready to help him, you know, like, like you, like, it's like so many people listening to this podcast, you know, and, and I think, I, I hope that, you know, other people like, like freshman Matt, um, can hear this right now and know that there's such a large network and support for them and, and so many people that love them. Yeah, I love that. And I think I'm connected with his sister on Facebook. I think it's one of the first. Yeah. And I've been reading a little bit about um, her honoring her brother. If I'm thinking of the right family. Um, that's pretty powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I think you bring honor to him. I hope so. Um, I have to think the veil is thin. And somehow what you're doing is healing him on the other side of the veil. And that because you're seeing, he's seeing maybe you live and where he couldn't. And it gives him hope and healing. And so I think... And you honored him during your valedictorian dress. And I sometimes think, was that partly for him? And did you partly heal him and brought honor to him as well as gave hope to other people on this side of the veil? That's just some thoughts that come to my mind sometimes about um, your ministry and sometimes how we try to help. And we may not know what we do for people that have gone. Um, talk more about... I'm trying to get a kind of a feel for the the darkest times at BYU and when it got better. It seems like it started to get better after you connected with this class. And was that pretty steady getting better? Were there even darker times that followed that or were there darkest times before that? I, I think that the, the beginning of my experience at BYU was probably the darkest, the worst. Um, this, this therapy group uh, really helped me not just look beyond my sexuality, but look at my sexuality as, as a part of a whole, which is who I am. 
So it was probably near the end of my sophomore year that I really began saying, you know what, I'm going to work on loving some more parts of myself that I haven't always. And so it didn't start with by saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to love the fact that I'm attracted to men and that, you know, this is what I feel. But but it was more like, you know, sometimes my intonation sounds, uh, you know, like a like what you know, it sounds gay. Right. And people think that I talk gay. And, and so today I'm going to talk exactly how it naturally comes out. And I'm not going to care cool. if it if it sounds gay. Right. And, and and then it worked on, you know, saying, well, I really like this shirt and it's pink, but I feel like people will look at me and think that I'm gay, but I'm going to wear it anyway because I enjoy it and I like it and that's who I am. And it was these small steps like that, um, that, that really began, uh, just making me feel better about myself. You know, I stopped caring so much whether or not people thought a certain way about me or like assumed certain things about my sexuality. And I just started to say, I'm going to live a little more authentically to who I am. And as a result of that, um, I, I started, I, I feel like attracting people and being brought towards people who supported me in doing that and who loved me for that. Um, and one of them, you know, was your daughter <laughs> that, uh, that she gave me the space, um, to, to experiment a little in, in the sense where I'm saying, you know, maybe today I'm, I'm gonna, you know, share some of my more honest feelings about my sexuality to somebody and oh, maybe that felt too uncomfortable for me. So tomorrow I'm not going to do that. And, and I actually surprisingly met a lot of friends like that at BYU, a very strong group um, that has helped me so much. And so I think having them there on a daily basis, um, being able to talk openly with them has really made all the difference from my experience at BYU. And I love that I'm rifling through my notes here and our regular listeners will recognize this, but it's a quote you're probably familiar with, Matt. Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted, and that can be draining. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And yeah. you're just describing this shift from trying to fit in into a heteronormative culture and be something you're expected to be, to be able to shift, to belong about who you are. And, and that isn't about... It doesn't change your commitment to the church or commandment keeping. We're not like saying your authentic self means you have to go into a same-sex relationship. But I love the way belonging, as you're describing it at BYU, is being able to be you and wear the pink shirt and share your feelings and and how much that must just feel emotionally just relieving. Yeah. And and just so I, that's helpful for me, um, just as your example. Any more thoughts on this sort of feeling like you belong? Um, yeah. I'm, and you just can be authentic with the real Matt Easton. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was a process. It still is a process. I, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, still 100% comfortable with who I am and, and a variety of aspects and and so it's something I still work on every day and, and probably will for the rest of my life I think you know everybody needs to constant should be constantly assessing you know where they're at who they want to be where they want to go and and anyway so I, I would say like overall though I felt like a positive um, in, incline in that direction of being more authentic but I don't want to discredit the fact that uh, um, the fact that I was at BYU um, made it difficult in a lot of ways and made it very scary, you know? Tell our listeners why. 
Um, in my experience, and I, I know that people have a variety of experiences here, right? Some people have only positive at BYU. Some people have had some very traumatic experiences. And I would say I land probably somewhere in the middle um, where I was given the space by my friends, as I described before, to uh, kind of like practice some of these things like wearing the shirt or my voice or, um, you know, different like hobbies. Like I really like facial care and I used to be afraid of talking about it. But but anyway, but there was always sort of this overlooming um, feeling on the on, on my shoulder or on my back where, you know, I still need to be careful and I still need to watch what I'm saying or what I'm expressing both in my feelings about my sexuality and the church uh, because there's this possibility that I could lose all I'd worked for academically. Um, and for me, that was a really scary pressure because I'd always performed very well academically. Um, I care a lot about um, the work that I had done and, and the rapport I was building with professors. And it scared me so bad to think that if I stepped too far or if I offended the wrong person that I could lose all of that. And so, so there I was at this university loving my academic experience, loving the rigor and the challenge and the people I, were meeting, uh, I was meeting, but also feeling so confused about my sexuality and knowing or figuring out who I wanted to be authentically, knowing that you know, if I did something that broke the honor code in figuring that out, that I could lose everything. And not only that, I, I think what scared me more is, is realizing that if I did get kicked out of BYU or if, if I did, you know, say if I went on a date and then somebody found out, uh, that I would have to explain it to my family, you know, explain it to the world. And that was almost scarier to me, I think. And so, so I guess just my experience at BYU was this kind of challenge of balancing both my academic uh, pursuits and goals, uh, my faith and reconciling the things I'd once believed that I wasn't sure about or new things that I believed um, with my sexuality and, and trying to figure myself out authentically while trying to live the standards of BYU. Um, you know, that, that sort of combination of all these different things uh, was really hard for me. It's, it's honest. It helps me to better understand. And I wish our listeners could see some of the visuals you're using. <laughs> yes, I talk a lot with my hands. You <laughs> do a very good job of that. So I hope oh, you're in front you. of the TV a lot <laughs> as you share your journey. But that's Thanks. helpful for me. And Thanks. I realize, you know, if you're a straight guy down at BYU and you innocently put your arm around someone of the same gender, I say down at BYU because I'm physically located north of BYU, <laughs> um, then that, you know, there's no worry there. But I recognize if you're gay at BYU and the honor code is any sort of affectionate to the same sex, then, you know, maybe not a trusted friend reports you, but anybody, I guess, can report you. Yeah. Um, and so if you even just innocently put your arm around someone of the same gender, maybe in the back of your mind, you're just so guarded. You have that other weight on you of just guardedness that any perceived uh, behavior and then you could be sort of, you know, on the spot then to sort of prove yeah. your innocence. Is that right. true? I don't, I mean, is that an example you're worried about? Yeah, no, I think exactly. And, and you know, I mean. And maybe that's why it's so fun to hug the girls. Because <laughs> I can ex express something, right? Uh, <laughs> I just like hugging in general, you know. That's a good um, thing. Thank you, thank you. But, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think. 
you know, we use the example of like, you know, if I were to hug a boy, technically it's against the honor code. And, and, you know, it may be a bit of an exaggeration, but at the same time, it's not because the possibility is technically there. Um, you know, I had, um, personally gay friends who, you know, posted a photo with another boy on their Instagram, you know, who was like their cousin or their brother or something, but somebody saw that knew they were gay thought it clearly must be their boyfriend and reported them the honor code. Um, you know, or, or say like part of my authentic experience, uh, I, I practiced, you know, not being ashamed about boys that I thought were cute. Right. So, so I, maybe I saw a picture of, you know, like Michael B. Jordan from black Panther. And, and so I'd say, Oh, you know, to my friend, like, Emily, Oh, he's, he's, I think he's so cute. And I was afraid if somebody overheard that, you know, maybe they could, they would make assumptions about me and, and might, you know, tell the honor code or someone. And, and so even stuff like that, where, I, I feel like that should be okay and it's still in line with church principles. Um, maybe doesn't feel the same way at BYU. That's honest. And I think yeah. I like being able to look inward and see how we have to do better. To me, that's part of an institutional growth and maturity. And uh, and sometimes that takes honest reflection and sometimes it takes the very people we're serving to listen to. Yeah. And so that we as, because in, in a sense, the honor code is serving BYU students in the BYU institution. And so that's helped, been helpful for me. And it helps me understand, I think anxiety is fear of the unknown or fear of the future. So, you know, just the anxiety that anything you could do could be perceived as, even though you haven't done anything wrong, could be perceived. And then just the added anxiety that brings in a very anxious time generally anyway, college. One of the things I'm just struck with, Matt, is that you're able to keep your grades. <laughs> so, I mean, you are under you're you're under emotional stress. You're under a lot of different stressors. I want to create a box here that's got like I don't know how many bo walls a box has six, and there's like all six of these wall. You are in there trying to get the very best academic experience you have, and you've got a bunch of walls kind of at times closing in you on you concurrently which normally would cause less academic excellence. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how you did that. Any thoughts on just how you maintained your academic excellence in the midst of kind of all this stress around you? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I wonder if, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, I've, maybe I felt that if I could perform well academically, maybe it would make up for some other parts of me. Right, so maybe... I might disappoint my parents by letting another Thanksgiving go where I don't invite a girl to our to our dinner. But if I can show them I was on the dean's list again, you know, maybe the, there's still a reason for them to love me, right? Or still a reason for them to not push me away. And and so I think that in in my schoolwork, I, I found a place that I could really succeed. And I, I for me, I just had to hold on to that because I thought if if nothing else, you know, at least I have this redeeming quality about me, which which I you know, there's so much more to me and so much more to everyone than our grades. But for where I was at, um, emotionally, spiritually, um, and where I was struggling, I think that's, that's kind of how I treated my grades. Yeah. I'd say it's a great credit to you. Cause I think one of the challenges is sort of now suddenly a visual came to my head of the of a toothpaste. <laughs> I don't know where these come. Yeah. The they toothpaste, just come right to you. Yeah. The toothpaste, you know, if the cap's barely on, and you squeeze, sometimes you get a huge explosion of toothpaste and it's sort of, and so 
you're stressed in a lot of different ways. And so one of the challenges is how we respond to that. And do we turn, and we sort of have to deal with it eventually. Eventually the cap pops off. Right. Um, somewhere. And I love the way you've turned to a positive way. I don't think that's a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of incredible strength that you, because you could have turned to a lot of different ways to sort of deal with the stress or escape from the stress. Yeah. And you turned to academics and, and I love that. I think that's a great sign of you and, and success. And I sense you had wonderful professors around you. Yeah. Yes. Talk about your relationship with your parents. Um, did you come out to them before, you know, when did you come out to them and how did that go? Yeah, I came out to them just over two years ago. So again, it was my sophomore year, um, the semester after I had taken that therapy group. So I started addressing my sexuality, you know, more head on. I wasn't trying to skirt around it as much. And, you know, I actually was going through a very, very difficult time, um, just feeling really low. I was feeling really depressed. I, uh, I'd actually called Emily, your daughter. Um, so she was just kind of talking to me, making me feel better. I was just feeling really low. And, and she said, um, you know, would you like a blessing? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I haven't had a blessing, you know, probably since my mission presence, but you know, so, uh, yeah, I would. And, and so she called up her brother, Jake, which is your other son. And, uh, he came over to my apartment and offered me a blessing. And in that blessing, um, I felt very, very strongly um, the spirit tell me that I needed to go see my parents right there and I needed to tell them that I was gay. And it was the first time in, you know, since my mission that I'd felt direction from from my heavenly father and I felt so peaceful about it. And, and it was super uncharacteristic. It was like a Tuesday night at like 9 p.m. Did Jake say that in the blessing or did that the impression that came to you? It was the impression that came to me. He didn't, he didn't say anything like that in the blessing. So I love that, listeners. I think that's a great principle of personal revelation. When I read the scriptures, sometimes it's the words on the scripture that answer a question, but sometimes it's the impression that comes to my mind because my spiritual sensitivity has just increased. So I love that you got a blessing yeah. and it connected you with God, but he gave you some feelings during that connection that weren't the words you heard in the prayer. Right. And I love that you can receive personal revelation multiple ways. So go ahead, keep telling. Now, now tell us about going and talking to your parents. Yeah, so I I felt this feeling come in the blessing. So as soon as it, it finished, I said, my goodness, Jake, Emily, I, I feel really peaceful. I feel really excited. I'm going to Salt Lake City right now. And, you know, Jake was like, oh, Matt, are you, are you sure? You know, it's you're, I know you're feeling very emotional right now. I, can I drive you there? Can I, and I was like, nope, I'm out of here. And I, I hopped in my car and I drove up and, um, you know, I'm... Did Jake, Jake know you were gay at this point? You know, Jake, I think I think he didn't know until right before he gave the blessing. So I think he came over and then I just explained a little bit and he was like, okay. Um, so I'd met him a couple times before, but we'd never talked okay. about it. Yeah. So um, I, I started driving up. Uh, it's a it's about a 45 minute drive. So I was waning, waning between or, or sort of uh, oscillating back and forth between feeling super pumped and then so freaked out and so scared. Um, so I, I called up my aunt. She at the time was the only other person I had come out to. Um, and I told her, oh, my gosh, I'm going to do this. And she said, Matt, I'm, I'm leaving work right now. Come pick me up and I'm going to come with you. And no matter what your parents say, um, I'm going to be here. Okay. 
And um, so that calmed me down a lot, right? Because I didn't know how my parents were going to react. But my parents knew I was coming. And I was going to come tell them something. So my aunt and I show up at the door. My parents look a little bit worried, like what, what's going on? But they were really calm. Uh, they took me downstairs into our basement. My little sister was upstairs doing her homework or something. And, and I just told my parents that this is something I'd felt so alone and ashamed of my whole life. And I, and I didn't know what to do and I just needed to tell them. Um, and they, they responded uh, the best way I could imagine. They just said, Matt, I'm so sorry that you felt this way. And I'm so sorry that you felt like you couldn't tell us. And they, they didn't try to, uh, you know, ask me, oh, are you going to church or are you dating a boy or are you, you know, they didn't, they didn't pry or ask anything about that. They didn't try to tell me, well, you should go read your scriptures and do X, Y, and Z. Um, they just let me cry. <laughs> and for me, that was the perfect response. I just, I just needed them to know that I was hurting and I just needed them to know that, that I, I needed them. Um, Crying is a sign of strength. It's a, it's a way to heal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I uh, came out to them that night and, you know, after it settled down a little bit, I ended up taking, I think the rest of the week off of school. I didn't go back down to Provo. And um, the only other thing my parents said about it is they just said, please be very careful at BYU. No matter what happens, please don't you know, put your academics at stake. Because <laughs> I, I think they were also aware of the honor code and aware of some of the implications. Um, but after that experience, I actually didn't really talk to my parents again about it. I think they were kind of afraid to ask me about it. I think I was afraid to talk more about it. And so we just kind of skirted around the topic. So uh, I don't think I had really spoken to my dad about it until um, the night before graduation where I said, hey, dad, I think I'm going to come out of my speech. So, so you know, I think that it's my parents have been nothing but loving and supportive, uh, but we've also been very careful about how we talk about it. And, and I think it's because we're both a little bit maybe afraid, also want to be respectful of each other. Um, but but I'm really thankful that that's how they responded to me. Tell our feel, listeners your dad and mom's name. Um, yeah, my, my dad's name is Jeff. It's my middle name, actually. <laughs> and uh, my mom's name is Liz. Liz. So, and how many kids do they have? Uh, they have four kids. So it's boy, girl, boy, girl. Uh, my brother Andy is the oldest. He's married, uh, has a beautiful little niece and a little boy on the way. Uh, then my sister Katie is the next one. She lives in Colorado with her husband, has another beautiful little daughter named Violet. Uh, then there's me. And then my little sister, Sally, who's actually going to graduate high school tomorrow. Wow. So, uh, bright and high. Bright and high. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, that's what advice do you have for parents? Because some parents ask me this question that suspect they have a gay kid, but they kind of want to ask, but they don't want to ask because if they don't have a gay kid, then the gay kid feels it's awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And so most parents that I meet with, wait for their kid to come out. A few parents have felt impressed to ask. Wow. Any advice you'd give to parents if they're pretty sure they have a gay kid and kind of want to talk about it? Yeah, I think in my experience, if my parents had asked me when I was 17 if I was gay, I would have outright denied it. I would have been so embarrassed, kind of what you were talking about, because, I mean, at the time, I, I wasn't ready to address it or talk about it. Um, 
usually when people ask me this question, I talk about my experience with uh, one of my cousins. Um, his name is Brett. Uh, one of my best friends grew up with him. Um, he, he just graduated from the University of Utah. So we're just a year apart. Um, and so he, uh, he told me this later after I'd come out to him. But he said, you know, he always knew that I was gay or, or strongly suspected it. So when we came back from our missions, um, instead of, you know, outright coming and saying it kind of abrasively, Matt, are you gay or something? He created a very safe place for me. And the way he did that is in family conversations, uh, you know, when I was around, he would always bring up that he was very supportive of the LGBTQ community or he would, you know, I have a very conservative uncle who maybe sometimes would say hurtful things about gay people and my cousin always stood up for them. Um, and, and he always said, you know, like, I, I can't imagine what it would be like if it was gay or he would, you know, joke with his brother and say, you know, Drew, if, if you're ever gay, I hope you know that I would love you so much, you know. Uh, um, and just like he told me later that he did that very point pointedly um, because he wanted me to know that if I ever wanted to come out to him, that he would be safe. Um, and that was so awesome because that's exactly what happened uh, is is before I had I had told my parents or anyone besides my aunt, um, is I knew that Brett would be a person that I could trust and a person who wouldn't judge me or tell anybody else before I was ready. And and so just by creating that safe place for me and by showing support and knowing that that I was listening to it and I heard it made all the difference. So I would say if if you feel like you might be the parent of a gay child or maybe your cousin is gay or your niece or nephew, really, really be careful about what you say around them and use your rhetoric and your words to let them know indirectly even that you're always going to support them and be a safe place for them. Um, and, and I think you probably also do a really good job at that, right? And, and you know, if you were my uncle, I'd feel very safe coming out to you. And, and, and that's all that, uh, that I think um, I, I would recommend, I think. Yeah. I love that answer. And I think of... Today on social media, I'm in a parent group of LDS parents that have LGBTQ kids. They invited me there. It was really kind of them. Cool. Even though I don't technically qualify. <laughs> and one of the moms is a young women's president. She's posted on Facebook a little, a few kind things about Pride Parade that just happened here. And I can't remember if she attended or just posted some pics. And she got some negative feedback from some of the ward. And I think one of the things that if you're a local leader or a parent... I think what's one of our responsibilities if you're an ally uh, is to say kind things about LGBTQ or do kind things like put a pride flag up or wear a pride tie tack. Some dads are doing that or things at church or things where you may have stewardship responsibility like a young woman's president or just to create a feeling of safety so that people know that's an, that's somebody I can talk to and hopefully whether hopefully the criticism can end of people that just support LGBTQ because the paradigm shifted for me when I realized this is our these are own members and what's my responsibility as a member of the church to lift the burdens of others mm -hmm. that's where everything shifted for me and I had stewardship responsibilities as a singles ward bishop during that time with the impression I probably had closeted YSAs and what yeah. was I going to do to create a safe environment um, talk about um, and you've shared this a lot in the news. I think you've probably done, there's probably been thousands of articles written about you. 
Um, talk about the prompting to come out as gay during the valedictorian speech. Yeah, so, um, you know, during my time at BYU as a, as a junior and a senior, I was not particularly active uh, in the gay community. And by that I mean, you know, I had attended USGA a couple times, but I, I didn't attend regularly. I wasn't in the presidency. Um, some of my friends got involved within Circle. Um, I think I had gone once, maybe twice, but I, I hadn't felt really comfortable, you know, like being quite out like that in that way. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I felt like, you know, I, I hadn't really shared my voice or, or put in my effort that maybe I should have and or, or maybe I was finally ready to, I think. And, and so I found out maybe a month or a month and a half before graduation that I had been chosen as the valedictorian. That is cool. That in <laughs> itself is worth yeah. a podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I was, I was so excited. Um, but And it wasn't until maybe two or three weeks after that that I found out I would be speaking because there are about uh, eight valedictorians in our college or, or however many majors there are so, or departments. It's like there's one for political science, one for sociology, one for history, et cetera, et cetera. And they only chose one of them to speak. So, so I was chosen to speak. Um, and and what over this? What group is this? Because this is um, uh, this. I'm trying to think. Is this the single valedictorian for all of BYU? Is this for one of the colleges? Right. Yes. So it's the val. I was the valedictorian for one department within our college. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was the, and then so, on behalf of your college, you were invited to speak. Correct. And what's the right. name of that college? It's the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences. Okay, so, and that valedictorian event or that graduation event occurred in the Marriott Center. Correct, yeah. Okay. And, and so from what I understand, our college is actually the largest on campus. Um, so we had over 10,000 people at graduation. So it's so a lot of pressure, a lot of people to talk to. and. So I started doing my research. I watched probably, you know, 20 some odd valedictorian speeches, um, commencement speeches, all sorts of kinds of talks. And, and I just realized I kind of felt this feeling that, um, you know, I was given this platform to speak and to share my experience. And I could probably give just a normal valedictorian speech, um, do a great job. And, you know, my, my family would love it. And that was that, you know, or I could take my opportunity to share some visibility to show people this vulnerable part of me and maybe make it mean something. And so, so this idea kind of popped in my head, you know, and I thought, you know, maybe this is time for me to, to share this, to be open. I was also very concerned, you know, as for a long time at BYU, I thought, okay, I've just got to get to graduation. Then I can deal with some of these harder questions. You know, I just got to make it to graduation, just got to make it. And, and, Suddenly it came around and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm graduating, you know, what next? Uh, you know, it's, maybe it's time to start addressing these hard questions. And, and I'd recently found out I got an internship in Salt Lake City, so I was going to be staying here in Utah. And I was really afraid that I was going to stay in the closet. I was really afraid that I was going to graduate, um, start hanging out with the same people I always hung out with, and never you know, take that next step to be more open and honest. And it was something I wanted to do, but I was afraid I wasn't going to do it. So I thought if I come out in this speech, you know, there's, there's no way that I can hide in the closet anymore, which is what I wanted. And then finally, I also thought, you know, I, I thought back to my freshman year. I thought about uh, other students who are going to be sitting in the audience watching 
you know, maybe even, you know, teenagers or kids who are family members of these students who are going to listen and hear me. And if they could see, oh my gosh, the valedictorian is just like me, right? That, that not only can they survive at BYU, but they can thrive. They can be necessary and important to the school. They can add, uh, add to the school in a way that nobody else can. If they could see that in themselves, then maybe, maybe just maybe when they get to that point, they're not going to feel as lost or alone. They're going to feel hopeful and inspired and know that they can do the same thing. That, that they can be an integral and necessary part of whatever community they're in. So, so I, I was feeling very bold. <laughs> I, was, I was feeling ready and inspired. And so I wrote this speech. And one of the qualifications is they said, you, you have to get this approved two weeks before you give the speech. And the approval had to go to the, I think it's the assistant dean or associate dean. Uh, his name was Sam Otterstrom. Um, so he worked in the dean's office at College of Family Home Social Sciences. So I sent the speech to him, and I was so nervous that it was not going to get approved for a variety of reasons. Like I thought, you know, maybe they'll say oh, it's a little too controversial or maybe too political or it doesn't fulfill the theme. Um, the theme they'd given me was celebration, <laughs> which is very broad. You know, they just wanted me to celebrate. Uh, so in every single paragraph that I wrote in my talk, I linked little notes to it off to the side of the Word document. So, for example, in, in the portion where I came out, um, you know, I linked uh, uh, that devotional. I, I think it, I, f I forget who it was now. I'm blanking. But it, but it was that uh, apostle who said, you know, we need to stand with our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. President Ballard. That's exactly. Yeah, President Ballard. That's who it was. So, so I, I put a little quote from his talk. I linked to it. Uh, there were other ones such as uh, Elder Holland's talk about uh, how we're all a, a choir and all, we need all of our voices. And so, so I'm linking these, notating these. I'm explaining why I'm doing this. I'm saying, you know, maybe if you don't like this, here's another way I could say it. And, and, and I sent it into him and I was like, okay, hey, if, if he doesn't approve it, then maybe it's a sign I shouldn't do it. And I got an email back a couple days later, and all it said was, I think this is great. Um, you, it's very well written. Uh, good job. Good luck. Like, go for it. Um, and that just took my breath away. I thought, whoa, wait. It's totally okay. Like, he didn't give me a single correction. And, I, and then I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to actually give this talk now. <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought, well, there's literally nothing stopping me now but myself. Uh, so, I, so I decided to do it. Um, did you tell many people? Did you tell friends? Did you tell family? Um, were people queued up or did you just kind of just keep that to yourself and, and give the talk? Um, you know, I told only my very closest friends. So there's just a very small handful because I told them, I said, here's what I'm thinking. I want to come out of my speech. What do you think? Are, are people going to hate this? Is it going to be good? And they were so supportive. They said, who cares what people think? Like, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. Um, so I gave the speech a couple times I, to my roommates. Good. I Good. told them, I read it to them and they said, ah, oh, this part's a little weird or this part, you know, you could tie in something more. And so I, I practiced really hard on it. You know, I didn't, I didn't want anything to mess up and, but, it, but I only told my friends. So it wasn't until, um, I talked to my cousin, the same cousin who uh, I came out to Brett. And I said, you know, I read the speech to him and he said, oh, do your parents know this is going to happen? I thought, mm, no, they don't. And, and he said, you know, if I were you, I might consider telling them, you know, just maybe prepare them. Uh, so, and that was the night before I gave a speech. So I went home 
And just as I was going to bed, I said, hey, dad, just by the way, I just want to let you know I'm going to come out of my speech tomorrow. And my dad just, he stopped and he said, oh, wow. Okay. He said, are, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm ready to share this part of myself. I'm tired of hiding it. And I think this is what I want to do. But, and then I started saying, you know, but I'm so afraid. What is my grandpa going to think? What are my conservative uncles going to think? You know, what is, who is this person, this person, that person. And, and my dad just kind of put his arm around me and said, Matt, if people have a problem with what you're going to say, it's a problem with them and not a problem with you. And so I knew my dad had my back and I, I just felt fine. So I went to bed in the morning he woke up or I woke up and he told me that he had found my speech and he read it. <laughs> and uh, I know it was, I was like, dad, I was going to surprise you. But, but I think he was nervous for me, but he read the speech and he just said, Matt, I read it. It's beautiful. It's perfect. You go kill it today. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm reminded of, and I don't want to make this about me, but maybe 10 years ago I was having lunch with a YSA stake president. He was telling me one of his YSA bishops came to him and said, I have a young man that wants to come out as gay during testimony meeting. Do you think that's appropriate? Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, that's probably not appropriate. But it's interesting, the YSA stake president says, I think it's fine if that young man feels like that's what he'd like to do during wow. testimony. And I just... I think we're nervous about making the nice tidy box less tidy <laughs> and and maybe being emotionally uncomfortable, but I think it's part of developing community and healing and authentic connection. So I now would do the same thing the YSA stick present did. So that's a that's a you know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just sharing like any testimony part of who he is and his mortal journey on here and we shouldn't rule out and rule in certain things just to keep us kind of emotionally safe. So back to the valedictorian speech, you're up there, um, and people clapped a couple times. What was that like? And then when you actually use, share with our listeners the actual wording that you used, if, you know, to come out as gay. Yeah, so I, I had started my speech, um, and I had reflected back. The theme was celebration, celebration for all. So I wanted to begin my speech by recognizing people and communities that weren't always recognized at BYU. So I, I started my speech, I was very conscious. I, I said, you know, congratulations to, you know, people who almost didn't make it, right? Who, who struggled and, and your struggle is real and it's valid. And congratulations to all those moms, you know, who had to have babies and raise children and go to class, you know, and, and who didn't always get the help from teachers they needed or the extensions. And, and, you know, congratulations to like my siblings of color, I said, you know, because the experience um, of, of being someone who's not white at BYU can be really tough and not always talked about or addressed. And, um, you know, people with mental illness, I, I, I just, I was trying to be very um, conscious of recognizing people who didn't always fit in because I haven't always fit in. Fit in. And um, then I, I said congratulations to the LGBTQ community, to my friends. And that was at the beginning of my speech and people cheered for it. And I was really surprised. I was like, oh my goodness, th these people are excited uh, for me to talk about this. It was not what I, I was expecting. And, and that was the first time in my head I thought, wait, maybe this speech is gonna go better than I thought. Because, you know, when I wrote it, I did not expect it to blow up in the way that it did. I didn't even expect people to respond to it. I thought, 
I'm not doing this for anyone else, but for myself and for those people that I feel should hear it. So I don't really care how people respond. I don't care if they boo me or if they shut off the mic or, or whatever they do. I mean, it would hurt me, but I'm, I was prepared for it. So um, anyhow, I, so, so when they cheered that I had congratulated my LGBTQ friends, um, kind of got my heart racing a little bit. Um, I, then I told a couple jokes and, and I just wanted to share some experiences about um, what had made my experience at BYU mine. One of them was how I had been hit by a deer on campus. Um, the next one was, you know, when I had to deal with my mom being diagnosed with terminal cancer and the, and the pain that came from that while studying. Um, and then the third one came, I just wanted to share my experience struggling with my sexuality because it was such an integral part of my time at BYU. I felt, how could I not talk about this? And, and so I, I shared how I felt like I was Enos in many, many, many times, you know, Enos in the Book of Mormon where he prayed to Heavenly Father and, and he wrestled with him in mighty prayer and, and how many times I'd wrestled and fought and felt defeated. And, and then I said, you know, that, that I am proud to be a gay son of God, that I am not broken, but that I'm loved and important to the plan of our great creator. And when I said that, um, the crowd started cheering for me. My, um, not just pu not just students, but other families, um, and it, it took my breath away. I I could have never imagined to be at a community at BYU on campus with a community that I had for so long been afraid of and felt ostracized by um, to cheer in support of me for pronouncing that and for for being happy that I was happy with my identity. Um, it was phenomenal. <laughs> And uh, furthermore, I, I, I was really careful to make sure that nothing I said was against church doctrine, that, that everything I said related back to the Savior. And, and ultimately, at the end of my talk, that's what I wanted to do, is I wanted to say, you know, these were my challenges and my experiences, and all of us have our unique challenges and experiences. You know, the, the moms who have to raise those children, you know, I don't know what that feels like, or my siblings of color, I don't know what that struggle feels like. And, and, you know, and that's okay. And I don't have to, we, we all have our own challenges to work through and, and Jesus Christ is going to help us. That's, that's the message I wanted to share. Um, so I, I, I got down from, uh, the podium. I just felt like this rush of energy leave me and I was just exhausted after giving it, but, but I felt so good. And I knew from that moment that I had done exactly what I was meant to do, that I was supposed to do. And I was proud of it. You know, so since then, you know, no matter what people said, if they, you know, some people thought I had said too much, other people said I didn't say enough, but for me, it, it was right. And I don't regret an ounce of it. I love this. I'm, I'm a gay son of God. Yeah. Um, I just love that. And I love the wording or the feeling you communicated. This is who I am and this is who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And I sometimes, and God didn't, it didn't somehow go haywire this is who I am and this is who God made me and who I am is not broken, doesn't need to be fixed and I'm a worthy son of God. And I just love that you communicated that and talk about, um, did you know that five days later roughly you'd be on the Ellen DeGeneres show? And so I assume that <laughs> you had no idea that this would blow up like it did. Right, right. So I, 
I honestly thought I was like, you know, maybe some people will talk about it on Twitter. You know, there's um, some very like traditional, you know, LDS people on Twitter, sometimes a little mean. And I thought, you know, oh, this mean group on Twitter will probably talk about me. You know, some people might find it exciting, but that's going to be about that, right? It's going to last for the weekend. And um, so what happened instead is it, it only really started to, to build up. So that was on Friday. I spent Friday night with my friends. I woke up in the morning uh, with my phone just like blowing up, you know, lots of texts from people saying, oh, I heard about your speech or I saw it online. Um, and then uh, it wasn't until Sunday that things really started to pick up where um, I started getting phone calls from different news stations. Local or national? Yeah, so they started local. The first one was our local NPR station. Uh, there were the she was it was Daisha Ian. She's super awesome. She was the first one to call me. She says I heard heard about this. Um, I'm I'm gonna do it on the radio tomorrow, and I'm gonna pitch it to our national um, radio station. Uh, but anyway, shortly after that, then I had local news stations coming over to my house, you know, doing all this stuff, uh, uh, trying to interview me, and and it was it was very overwhelming. Um, I still was really anxious about. My speech, you know, I was I was nervous about what my family thought. I was nervous about how BYU might react, even though they had approved it. Um, and then to have suddenly all this like media attention kind of hawking onto my family, um, it was really hard. It was super hard. And so that that was on Sunday where things started to pick up. And then on Monday morning, uh, it just exploded. Um, so overnight, the the Washington Post wrote about it, uh, the New York Times, um, some larger news stations. Uh, so. Thankfully, some of my friends hadn't started uh, uh, their jobs yet. Um, so two of my friends, I, I reached out to them and I was like, hey, I need I need help. I'm not in the emotional state or mental state to deal with all of this. Um, Who are those friends? So they were my friends, Connor Kreutz um, and Sam Frazier. Uh, so they're also poli-sci majors who we'd, we'd graduated together. Um, so I gave them my social media logins. I gave them my email login. I said, please help me field the good comments, the bad comments, uh, the reporters who we want to talk to. Uh, so they just sat down and just started making spreadsheets and contacting people for me uh, and, and literally saved me. They, they were my publicists. Uh, we like to joke. So um, I remember, I don't know if it was the Monday you came to our it house was, yeah. just because it was quiet and I was... Well, it wasn't quiet for you. It was quiet here. And there was TV stations outside. And I just was impressed. Connor had this spreadsheet up. And (laughs) I'm sort of a marketing, advertising, PR guy. And I'm just recognizing the great work we're doing. Because Connor has this spreadsheet up, color-coded with the with Because you have too many requests to fulfill. So he's there prioritizing them. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, here are these two really smart college grads. And Sam sounds like he's there too, even though he wasn't in our house. Managing what's just blown up into a need for national, you need a national agent, but you don't <laughs> have one. And you guys are just doing the best you can. And you would leave the kitchen. I went back to work after a while. <laughs> you would leave the kitchen, go to one room, do interviews. And Connor, and I just thought... You just did such a great job. And I realized you were in the middle of suddenly, you know, developing messaging for a national audience on the fly. And I think you did a great job. Well, thank you. And uh, just for all of you who are listening, um, I just want to take a moment and and thank Papa Osler. Uh, So when all this started happening over the weekend, um, people started showing up to my house news reporters were kind of harassing my parents. Wow. And my mom is still still quite sick. and, And so... 
I was, I didn't really want them coming to my house. I was, I was nervous. I didn't want to upset my family. And so, um, I reached out to Papa Oscar. I just texted him and I said, you know, I'm so overwhelmed and I, I, I don't want them coming to my house. Can I please just come to your house? And he was, he was so awesome. Uh, he, you were so awesome. He, you just said, please come right over. And so he let reporters come to his house. He let me sit here. He cooked me dinner. I mean, it I was just, my, yeah, my wife. Yeah. 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 Dinner and she like kicked me there. I mean, it was just, it was such a refuge for me. And just to know I have the safe place really meant so much. So thank you for letting me come. It was an that. honor to just watch a once in a lifetime experience <laughs> for me to see and to not feel a need to coach you at all or mm. Connor and just say, you guys got this. And and what a great job. Talk about Ellen DeGeneres and why that was important and why you even turned down other big potential interviews because Ellen DeGeneres was important and how that ended up happening. Yeah. So um, I woke up Monday morning, uh, obviously to all these phone calls, text messages, Facebook requests and emails. And one of the emails, I opened it up and it said the Ellen DeGeneres show was the subject. And I opened and it was from someone who worked on our team. And they said, Matt, we've heard about your story. We think it's really awesome. Uh, we want to see if you'd be a good fit for the show. Can we interview? Like, can we do a FaceTime interview? Um, and so I, I FaceTimed her and, and she talked to me. She listened to my story. She was like, I think there's some great potential here. We don't know if, if we'd want to give you tickets to come on the show or fly you out or just like do a video or something. Can you just kind of hold tight? And uh, I knew at that moment that I wanted to be on the Ellen show more than, more than the other opportunities because I thought, you know, Ellen does such a great job at, at being very inspirational and positive. Uh, whereas I felt like these media stations, you know, like it's, it's important for them to, to get a spin on the stories and have their own take and they have deadlines and, and sometimes they could be like a bit aggressive or trying to coerce me to say things that supported their sides. And, um, so, so anyway, so to put it into context, you know, I had, uh, offers from, you know, the, the today show or USA today, or, or these different big talk shows to come. Um, but the, the Ellen people, they said, hey, listen, we want you on the show, but you have to say no to these other opportunities because we, we want it to be exclusive, you know. And so I kind of had a decision to make, you know, should I hold out for the chance to be on the Ellen show or should I fulfill all these other requests? And, you know, ultimately I decided if, if I go on these talk shows, you know, they're probably going to put their spin on it. Um, it'll, it'll be on the news for a day. And then after, you know, the news cycle, something new will be happening tomorrow. But if I could share my experience and my story with Ellen, maybe it, it could have a bit more of a substantial and positive impact. Uh, so I decided to hold out. <laughs> they ended up calling me two more times, um, talking to me, hearing about my story. They didn't tell me if I was going to be on or not. And so I would say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going out of town at the end of the week. So if you want me on the show, it's probably got to be soon. And, you know, these other shows want me, but I'm holding out and Good. It's good thanks. to be up front. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And they just said, you know, just hold on. Like, I promise it'll be worth it. And so I went to bed Monday night not knowing what was happening. Um, and then Tuesday morning at about at about 10 a.m., I got a phone call from them. And they said, hey, Matt, how fast can you get to the airport? <laughs> and I said, does this mean I'm going on the show? And they said, this means you're going on the show. That's so, cool. Uh, yeah. It was, I, was, I was over the moon because I thought, finally, I'm going to get to talk to someone that doesn't have you know, an agenda to, to catch me saying something or to, you know, push their ideas. Anyway, anyway, so, um, uh, and, and also I do, do just want to say something else that was really fun is at that time, my friend, Sam, she was fielding my Twitter and, um, 
I, I had some really awesome people reach out, including Kristen Chenoweth. She, she tweeted me some support. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's a big LGBTQ rights activist. Uh, uh, Billie Jean King, uh, she was, she's a really famous lesbian tennis player. Um, and then Chastin Buttigieg, who is... I saw that uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's the husband of presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, uh, who's, who I, I, really, I really admire. I really like him. And then also, you know, BuzzFeed interviewed people to judge about me. It was just, it was just surreal to have all these people who I thought were so awesome and so amazing uh, reach out and and let me know that that they were standing with me. So it's just it, that part was really fun. Um, the, the like some of the mean stuff, you know, like it didn't make me feel great, but but that really, I was like, oh, like this is really kind of catching on. You know, this something is happening. And, uh, so, so anyway, so fa fast forward to Tuesday, I get the phone call. I can take one friend. Uh, so I take my friend Connor cause he'd been helping me so much kind of, you know, coaching and coaching me. And so we fly out to LA Tuesday afternoon. We get to LA. Um, we stay in a, they put us in a hotel Tuesday night, then Wednesday morning. Um, I buy a cute outfit to go on the show and then, and then they pick us up and they, they take us to the Ellen DeGeneres stage in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, so then I, I uh, just waited backstage. They put me in a green room. They said, you're not allowed to wander around. So I couldn't figure out who else was there, you know, to meet, but gave us lots of snacks and food. And, um, excuse me, the, uh, producer came by and she said, hey, here are some of the questions that, um, you know, Ellen is going to ask you or, or might ask you. And here's maybe some ways you might want to respond or some things we'd like you to touch on. And, um, uh, what's funny is I just said, you know, like, please be like, very careful about just what you ask me, you know, cause I don't have my degree yet and I, I don't want to come across in any negative way because it might impact my, my getting my degree. Um, so anyway, so I was waiting, then they, they bring me backstage right before. And so the first time I'm walking on stage that you see on the camera is the first time that I'm actually meeting Ellen. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was just, uh, it was, it was so surreal. I was like, I can't believe I'm here. I'm sitting in this chair that all my favorite celebrities have sat in. Wow. And then I'm looking straight into the ice blue eyes of Ellen DeGeneres. And I just, I, I kind of just blacked out. It just, it happened so fast. I didn't really remember what I was saying or what was happening. And she was asking these questions and, uh, she asked kind of that funny question, you know, like I was told, I can't ask you you know, certain things, what are those things? And I was like, Oh, I told you not to say, it. you know, anyway, but, uh, it was a really fun experience, you know? And, and then before I know it, they're handing me this check and, and people are clapping and, and then they usher me off the stage. Um, we go back to my green room, we gather the stuff, they put me in a car and I'm gone. Wow. It was just, so it was just, it was like, I blinked and it was all over. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You did a great job. <laughs> you were confident. And sure, and very articulate. And as I watch, our family watched that, you did a great job. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, th so that was on Wednesday. So so literally, oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, six days after this had happened, here I was. Um, and I had never in my wildest dreams could have, have imagined that. And and so after that, um, you know, sort of the, the hateful messages, thankfully, Sam and, and Connor, they fielded almost all of that for me. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Connor, <laughs> on behalf of all of us. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Um, and so, of course, I still got like here and there, you know, some unkind or, or maybe uninformed messages. But but by and large, um, I, I had an overwhelming amount of support from people. Uh, both within my community, you know, my, my cousins I hadn't talked to in a long time, my aunts and uncles were texting me, 
um, and also a lot of strangers from all over the world. Um, and then what happened is, so, so the hate like died down pretty fast, uh, but the, the positive support kept coming. And what, what's more is that a lot of people in my similar situation started reaching out. Um, and I started speaking with, um, you know, teenagers uh, from all sorts of parts of the world who were gay, both members of the church and, and other ones maybe who were, had some sort of faith, you know, or maybe Christian or, um, you know, different situations. And they started reaching out to me on Instagram and Facebook and saying, what do I do? You know, how, how do I manage this? And I had straight people reaching out saying, um, you, you know, how can I stand up for LGBTQ people? And also how can I stand up for my faith? And, and I, I felt sort of an imposter syndrome, you know, like, I don't know if I'm really the guy to talk to, but, but at the same time, I was so happy that, that finally they had someone that they could share this with. Um, I had, you know, two or three people come out to me as, as transgender who had, they'd never told anyone in their life before. And that's cool. And, and all I could tell them, you know, was exactly what, you know, I've said before is that they're not alone, you know, that, that I was there for them. They could always contact me. And, and then I started having, um, parents reach out and I had this one set of parents, uh, reach out to me and they asked if they could get my number and give it to their son. Um, he's LDS, um, he's 16 years old, uh, and he was suicidal. He was gay. And, um, and, and when that call, when that call or that message came, um, first of all, I was really nervous. I felt again, very inadequate. Um, but then also so happy that, that they'd reached out. Uh, so I got on the phone with this young man and, and, you know, I just, I just said, I feel you. I know what that feels like, you know, that, that these feelings you're having, um, it, it's okay, you know, and, and it's going to be okay. I'm going to help you through. I'm going to stand here with you. Um, and then it happened again. He was somebody else. And, and I thought, you know what? Kristen Chenoweth saying she supports me. Yeah, that's fun. Meeting Ellen DeGeneres, sure, that was cool. But this was meaningful, and this is what I wanted to have happen. Um, this is honoring Harry. If that's his name, Harry Fisher? What the, yeah, yeah. Is it Harry Fisher? Yeah. Who died by suicide? I'm getting his name right. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, and I thought, how awesome that, that I, I hope that that continues to happen. And, and maybe even if, you know, not towards me, that maybe my story or my experiences can spark other conversations, can give people courage to tell their parents that they're proud to be a gay son of God or a gay daughter of God or a transgender son of God, you know? Um, so that was awesome. That made, you know, I would have gone through 3 million more angry comments for, for something like that. You know, I, I would have given away my $10,000 check from Ellen or, or all the experiences just so that those those kids won't feel alone. You know? I'm to touched by that, Matt. It's really powerful. You know, just this incredible moment to be on Ellen DeGeneres, that dream <laughs> that I saw kind of starting in our kitchen on that Monday to then happen. But then how much more it means to you to talk to a 16-year-old kid. And that's part of your original prompting to do this is you wanted... You looked at Harry Fisher and said, is that my future? And then you said no. And we had a better system than Harry had. We had a support group at BYU. We had some of the things that Harry didn't have, and you took advantage of those and got in a better spot, and then you're kind of paying it back. <laughs> hope is one of my favorite words, Matt, and you give people hope. 
I want to read this quote um, that I read sometimes. It's called The Wounded Healer. And this is who you are and really all of us. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Hmm. You know the desert, Matt. So when you talk to these 16-year-old kids and you talk on this podcast, you're the wounded healer and you can authentically lead them out of the desert. And it's in Christ is the ultimate wounded healer, but we he needs people like you on this earth to give hope and vision and you and I love this whole idea of a wounded healer because you are a healer, but we're all a little wounded. And you and you had to go through the woundedness to be able to heal and to heal others. That was really powerful, man. And then there's this side, and he says, wow, if I could have Matt on the podcast in five or ten years, what you're able to do <laughs> with um, LGBTQ youth and the way you give them hope, and the way they look up to you. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be a national spokesman. You can do that too. But it's it's the hope you give as they read your messages and they hear people clap at BYU. What kind of a message does that send? And they see you on Ellen DeGeneres and they see the people that love you and they go, maybe there's hope for me. And they see your family support and Brett's support, this straight cousin. <laughs> and everybody can do what Brett did. Brett did the gospel <laughs> of Jesus Christ. And Brett's, you know, I don't know if you're listening, Brett, but kudos to you for um, sort of having a thoughtful approach here. We can all be Brett's. So do you have feelings of how, I want to ask you a question because as an ally, I don't get pulled very often. I don't have to, my whole story is not part of my allyship. I'm just boring. <laughs> and so you're in this space because you're LGBTQ that, you know, people may want to take your status and accomplish their own agenda with it. Yeah. Do you feel some of that where people have a story and then they kind of want to take you and make, and you know, that may be critical of the church or saying you've got to go this certain path as a gay son of God. Any thoughts on that and how you manage that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been pretty difficult. I mean, um, I, I've had it like a couple people reach out for, you know, different opportunities, uh, to like appear in different places or to, or to speak different places or, um, and, and, you know, sometimes I've felt that, uh, you know, people have tried to politicize my experience a little bit, uh, either in defense of the church or in critique of the church. Um, and that's been something I've, I've tried to be really careful of, um, because as, as hopefully, uh, everyone listening has sort of caught on throughout this talk is, or this, this podcast is that, you know, I, I think I land somewhere in the middle where I'm, I, I love the the way my family has raised me and the, my culture of, of LDS faith, but I, but I also have a lot of struggles and a lot of pain that has come from it. And and um, so I've, I've wanted to be very careful about how I frame my story. And, and you know, also, I, I don't really know if I have an agenda. I, I, I don't. I don't think I do. Maybe, maybe I do. Maybe I want one, and, and I'm not sure. And so, so it's kind of hard as I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I want to say. You know, as people are trying to get me to say one thing or another. Um, so I've had to be, you know, very careful about that. I, I had a couple BYU professors reach out to me and just say, you know, like we love you. I I love what you're doing, and and please just don't let anyone take advantage of you. 
Um, and so I've had to learn to say no to a lot of stuff and, and to kind of speak up when something doesn't feel quite right. Um, and that's harder, that's harder than it sounds, you know? Yes. Um, but, but so overall though, I think that I've been really happy with, with the chances I've, I've had. Um, I, I got to speak at the Out Foundation last Friday, which is a um, LGBTQ alumni association. Uh, so it's for people who have graduated to network and help students. Uh, they gave out two scholarships to o out and open um, LGBTQ students. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I got to meet RuPaul and go on his show. And, That's and cool. Thanks, yeah. And, um, so, so lots of, of really cool and fun opportunities um, that I hope I've been able to um, use correctly. Do people ask you a lot of questions about your future on these different paths you potentially could take as a gay LDS son of God and and how do you manage those questions? Because some people may want you to take this path, this path, or this path. And how do you manage that? Yeah, that's really hard. You know, a point blank, a lot of people have said, you know, are you going to leave the church now? Are you going to marry a man? Or are you going to, you know, do this or that? And um, the, those, those are questions that I'm still asking myself and I still don't necessarily know the answer to. Um, what I've told them and, and what I feel is working for me right now is focusing on my relationship with God and focusing on my relationship with my family. And right now those are the two most important things to me. And, uh, you know, I'm okay with the other stuff taking its time. Um, for so long I have felt like I had to fit in a box that I had to be someone that, uh, you know, met everyone's expectations and me coming out of my speech is the first time that I'm saying, you know, I'm kind of done living by these expectations and I'm doing things my way now. And, uh, this is one way that I'm doing it. <laughs> so, uh, so that's been my answer and, and I'm happy with that. So I'm, I'm taking it one day at a time, uh, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. I, I love that answer. And I would, if you were my YSA and I were your Bishop, I probably, I know, you know, the doctrine of the church, man, you know, it better than <laughs> I've learned LGBT people almost know it better than straight people. <laughs> um, so I probably wouldn't remind you of the doctrine. I'd probably, I tried not with the YSAs to say, this is, this is your, you know, I tried to let them self-determine their path. And I'd say, yeah. I'll walk with you. Yeah. Um, and I love the principles that you shared is stay close with God, stay close to your family. And I'd probably invite a gay YSA or an LGBTQ YSA who's brand new coming out, take it slow. Yeah. And I think you have, you haven't, you've, I think, taken it really slow and you came out to close people, you came out to family. And I think that doesn't mean you're not sure. I think you're just recognizing it's a journey <laughs> and you don't have to meet anybody's expectations, but your own. And I think the LGBTQ people make the best decisions, are the ones that are making that based on them yeah. and going really slow and having the maturity to do that. Your maturity is very high. You're way past your years. And I've noticed that in some of the LGBTQ I've met because they've had to work so hard and work so close with God. Often they have a better foundation for personal revelation because they've had to get a lot of that on their own hmm. at times. And, and people just haven't had all the right answers. And I, I think that's the doctrine of our church anyway, is just what you're doing. And so I like where you are. And I love the maturity of saying, I can't meet everybody's expectations for my life. It's impossible. <laughs> and it would be overwhelming. So I think you're doing a great job. And simplify. I think sometimes simplifying complex things 
back to very simple one or two principles. I'm going to stay close with God. I'm going to stay close with my family, and I'm just going to have faith that that fog in my future, to use Elder Bednar's fog, will gradually lift as I move forward in my life. Yeah. Any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners as we're coming to a close, Matt? Um, you know, I just I just want to say thank you so much, Papa Osler, for not only having me on on your podcast, but for helping me for a long time. Um, you know, Paul Osler, I've known about him for a long time. His, his family's helped me in so many wonderful ways. And, and, and I guess I just want to say that, uh, um, I, I really feel like, um, what I've done is, is part of my plan. I, I think that, um, you know, I feel close to my heavenly father and, and for the first time in my life, I feel happier than I've ever felt before. And, uh, living authentically uh, is an amazing feeling. Not having to hide who I am to my parents or my siblings or to be afraid anymore, um, it's really freeing. It's awesome. It's really cool. And I think for our younger listeners, closeted people, what you just said is what everybody can do. And I think you did this at your own pace and your own time. And my experience is everybody needs to do this at their own pace at their own time. I love the fact you never really connected with Encircle or USGA at BYU. And I, I, I'm not saying everybody should do that, but I love the uniqueness of your path. And I think every LGBTQ person, as they're considering coming out, yeah, there's examples. And I think all of those help make informed decision. But I think one of the things I love about your story is you did it on your terms, Matt. Yeah. And you didn't do it on fear versus, I love this principle of fear versus faith. Fear is we do decisions based on fear. And faith is we make decisions based on we know it's the right thing to do. And you've made a lot of great decisions based on faith, including the commencement speech. And having the faith, you didn't do that out of fear. You did that out of great faith that this was the right thing to do. And you did it. And it just opened up, you know, a coming out story that wouldn't be possible, perhaps, if you had come out further. Even around our home, I... I never knew if you were gay or not, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, okay. I never outed you. I never, I, I, my gaydar is actually not very good anymore <laughs> because I've met so many gay or lesbian people yeah. that the stereotypes that I had of 10 years ago have kind of melted away. Cool. Yeah. So I, I, I think I asked a couple of our kids maybe, you know, at some point after I got <laughs> to know you, but I share that just because um, you came out on your own terms. And I love the way you did this at B-Way, and I love the doors it's open for you. Now you're getting on with your career. You've got this valedictorian. You've got this great resume, these work experiences. You're authentically living your life. You're happier than you've ever been. And that's yeah. certainly been my experience is the people that come out. And not everybody has to come out. I guess yeah. I would even, if there's some people that say, I just don't feel impressed to come out, even though I recognize Matt is happier. I think most do. Yeah. And I think our younger people do, but I think it's maybe everybody just needs to do that in their own path. But I used to be fearful of people coming out because it sort of, I wanted everything to fit in this nice tidy box and yeah. uh, and not cause me to stretch emotionally or kind of have to address the situation or understand what's really going on here. And that's more for a straight person saying, don't come out because it complicates things for me. And what would you say, one of the questions I always get um, when someone comes out is, why do you need to, I'm straight. I don't need to tell everybody I'm straight. Why do you need to tell everybody you're gay? Um, what's your answer to that question? 
Um, yeah, I think for everybody it's different. Like you said, for some people, they don't need to come out. Um, but again, I would just draw back on my experience of visibility. And until there's a day um, where people aren't persecuted for their sexuality, where people don't feel like they need to take their own lives because of, of the pain and the rhetoric that comes from our sexuality, until that day comes, I think we need to keep speaking out and speaking up and saying, we are here. You know, we are here and we are, we are tired of not being heard and, and you, you need to listen to our voices and our experiences. And so I, I hope that if, you know, if you're listening and you're one of the people who think, you know, why do we need to come out? Um, just, just think about the power that comes from visibility and from knowing that there are other people like you out there um, that gives hope, like you said. You know, you know, Hope is a good word. And I sort of think, you know, I tweeted out one day, why do people need to come out? And Vance Bryce tweeted back and said, straight people do come out. You know, I thought yeah. about that as I put my arm around my wife in a meeting we had this afternoon. And I'm out. I mean, everything is a heteronormative culture where I'm out with my arm around my wife. And when I was at BYU, I was talking about the women I was dating and yeah. I could celebrate all that and I could. And so I recognize that, you know, I do come out, but it's important for me to say, well, because I'm out of straight because of the, the our culture and the normalness of that. And yeah. and so I recognize for me as a straight person to say, well, don't come out. I don't come out. Isn't fair. <laughs> I haven't yeah. taken the work to listen to why LGBTQ people don't need to come out. Like you've taught us and our listeners and why that is healing and helpful. And it's not about leaving the covenant path. It's not about rebellion or anger or wanting to live some sort of different lifestyle. It's just about being the authentic you as you've communicated in this podcast. And I love then where you are emotionally, you've never been happier. Thanks. And why wouldn't a loving God want that for you, Matt? He, right. I mean, men are and women are that they might have joy and they might be happy. And it yeah. just makes me happy. And I think the God in heaven, our heavenly parents that love you think this is makes me happy. And I believe if they were sitting here, they would say, this is exactly how we intended you to be created, Matt. That that nothing went haywire here. We're not doing a head, a face palm up in heaven saying, "Oh no, what went wrong?" <laughs> Matt Easton's gay. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think they make mistakes. Yeah. And so I think you are exactly who you were meant to be. And and I think everybody's meant who they are. And it's all part of Elder Holland's choir that you talked about. We need all the parts of that choir to create the harmony. And I think you know this, but I've I sort of thought my straight ally position was kind of to rescue LGBTQ people, and I've hopefully matured where I recognize LGBTQ people are rescuing me. Mm. I have I have become a better disciple of Christ by having LGBTQ people in my life that I never could have. Wow. And I look at the body of Christ in Corinthians twelve, where it talks about the arms and the hands and everything is worthy and you know, we need our LGBTQ brothers and sisters like President Ballard talked about to help us become the body of Christ that God wants us to be because it yes. will help us grow. And that's certainly been true in my life. So thank you for helping to rescue me <laughs> and what you've taught me and your brothers and sisters to be a better disciple of Christ. And I just, I really believe that. I don't just say that to say a nice thing to you across the table here. But it is absolutely true. I am a better disciple of Christ. 
and LGBTQ are actually rescuing me because of the things they're teaching me. They're becoming wounded healers in some way because of their insights into the gospel of Jesus Christ and their ability to bring hope and perspective and goodness in my life. Yeah. Any last words, Matt, as I, I got on a little soapbox there? <laughs> that was perfect. It was, it was perfectly said. Um, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. You bet. Thank you, Matt Easton, and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thanks, Tom Garbett, our producer, who puts these online. And and I'm reminded by some of you podcast experts that it's good to rate podcasts. So to increase our listenership, we don't donate to this podcast. We have no sponsors. But if you have time, wherever you're listening, go ahead and rate our podcast so more will engage. Thank you for joining us.